Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Father, we come to you in this moment knowing that life surrounds us. It has happened this morning. It will happen this afternoon. We ask, Father, that in this moment, in these minutes, as we sing praise to you, as we worship you through looking at your word and understanding who you are, we pray that you would allow the things of this world to not be a distraction to us, that you would allow our hearts and our minds to be focused on you. May you be glorified and honored. May we as your people grow to know you more, to love you more, to look more like you. And it's in your amazing and holy name we pray. Amen. So let's say you have a group of friends. And in this group of friends, you gather for meals, which is what every good friend group should do. And as you gather, everyone brings something for this meal, but you know that what you need is salad. You don't really need a salad, but let's, for the sake of argument, you need a salad, you need real food, and you need dessert. If you have a friend who habitually shows up 30 minutes late to everything they do, don't have them bring salad. Have them bring a dessert. Because the timing of when they show up and when they bring what they brought impacts everybody else and everything you're doing. If you show up late and you've got a salad, everyone's waiting for you. Or they do what they should do and skip the salad and eat the meat. That's really what should happen. Though, I grew up in Minnesota and you have to know that in Minnesota, they have a very, very loose use of the word salad. Um, there was a salad called an apple snicker salad, and this salad was, was gelatin or jello, vanilla jello, whipped cream, Snickers bars, and apples. It's amazing! And it's a salad. It's the only salad I ever liked. Not quite, but it feels like it. But if you are that person that shows up late, or you have a friend who is that person, they should bring a dessert because their timing matters. Psalm 73 is all about timing. It's all about how the timing works for God's people in relation to God. If I said Psalm 73, I definitely didn't mean that. Um, I meant it reversed and then subtract a three to a two. I got nothing. Psalm 27. I'm glad I did that one not recorded. Psalm 27. And we're going to read the end of it. It's important to remember that psalms are songs. And so when they're used in a message, when they're used as the point of a message, you already know and you're supposed to know the end. In a story, going through like the book of John or a different narrative, you're supposed to not know the end until you come to the end. But in a poem, you're supposed to already know the poem. And so you can look at the end, because it's not written to be chronological, it's, built, it's written to be rhetorical. The very end of Psalm 27 says this, verses 13 and 14, I believe that I will look upon the goodness of God in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. That becomes the main point. The thrust of this entire psalm is to get to that point. 
So the question becomes, how did David get there? How did David get to where his call to the people is to wait for the Lord? Well, he starts in the very beginning. Psalm 27, it says, of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is, must, is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. I will offer in his tent sacrifices and shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says, your face, O Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. David starts this psalm and he, he moves us through this, this general movement. He starts by uh, an acknowledgement of the truth an acknowledgement of reality that God is our salvation. He then moves from that acknowledgement of reality into the confidence that exudes from that knowledge. But then he moves into a moment of, of what could be defined as trepidation. He's unsure of what's going to happen. It's almost like he stops looking at God and starts looking at the things around him and he becomes unsure in that moment. And then he resolves and he comes back to understanding that God is good. So he will wait on the Lord. That's the movement. Now let's take a look at how he gets there or how he goes through that. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? This is really a basic question. And we see it listed in multiple different ways through Scripture. When God is that, that main saving point, that main securing point, we have no need for fear. Joshua chapter 1, verse 9 is a fantastic verse. And, and before we get into what it says, we need to know the background of it. So Moses has led the people out of Israel. They've done incredible things through the desert. They come to the promised land. The people say, mm, I don't know that God's going to let us get in. They're big. They're strong. They're scary. We need to run away. So they run away. 
And God says, because you ran away, none of you get in. So everyone dies in the wilderness. All the children of the next generation is raised up. They're ready to go in. Moses decides to try to show his power and position to the people and take the focus off of God, put it on him. So God says to Moses, Moses, you're not going to make it in. You're going to see the promised land. You're going to be right there. And then you're going to come be with me, not in the promised land on earth. You'll be with me in heaven. And everything gets handed off to Joshua. Talk about a terrifying position. A nation of people under your command that you're supposed to take and do something with them that they've already said that they can't do. Some of whom don't want to do. And all of the old people who saw God do amazing things are all gone because they wouldn't trust him. So now you've got a whole bunch of new people who've only heard about the things that God has done and God has said, now Joshua, take them into the promised land. And he tells him this. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not, fright, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. And if we're not careful, that's where we end the verse. Hasn't God told us, be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified. Don't be afraid. Let's go. Or we look at Paul writing to Timothy and he says, God hasn't given you a spirit of timidity, of fearfulness, but a spirit of power. And then we forget the point. The point isn't that we can accomplish these things. In fact, the point is the opposite. He's saying to Joshua, look, I get that you can't do this. It's beyond you. It's beyond your ability. It's beyond your scope. It's beyond anything you can fathom to actually do. He can't even get his people across the Jordan. But God says, do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged because you have a whole army of people? Because everyone's going to listen to you? No. Don't be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Whether you're here and terrified about how you're going to lead the people, or whether you're crossing the Jordan, or whether you're laying siege to Jericho, or whether you're marching through Canaan, God is with you because you can't do it, but he can. So don't be terrified. Don't be afraid. He's taking care of it. To go to a New Testament example, we look at Romans chapter 8, verse 31. And this is post-death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the one who thou inhabits us when we believe in him. And Romans 8, 31 says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He doesn't say, don't be worried, you've got this. He says, what should we say? Everything's against us. What are we going to say? Well, if God is for us, what if the world's against us? What does it matter? In Greek, this is called the first condition clause, which is not something you should know, nor something you need to repeat to anybody. But it's good to understand. In a first condition clause, it assumes a particular answer. So the assumption to the question, who is against us, is no one. They don't even have to say that. The way they write the Greek makes it clear. They're saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, nobody can. Because God is for us. So even if somebody stands in opposition, they're irrelevant because God is for us. Therefore, we don't have to be dis dismayed. We don't have to be discouraged because God is with us. The Lord 
is my light and my salvation. Because of that, who should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? I shouldn't be afraid of anybody or anything, not because I possess the ability to overcome those people, but because I particularly don't possess the ability to overcome them. But God does. So I don't have to be afraid of what happens with my boss. I don't have to be afraid of what happens with the city government, the county government, the state government, the national government. Not that it doesn't matter because I care, but it doesn't matter because it doesn't change anything for me. God is with me even though all of them would be against me. All of them together account to nothing in comparison to the God who's with us. Because even if they take our freedom, take our money, take our land, take our life, what do we lose? Nothing. We're in heaven with God forever. So we haven't actually lost anything. So why be afraid? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I fear? And from this exudes this level of confidence from David that we see almost nowhere else. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart will not fear. The war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord and that I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, O Lord, do I seek. This, this confidence that David has that just, just oozes out of him. Why? Because he knows that his salvation is in the Lord. His stronghold is in the Lord. So if an army encamps around him, if enemies arise against him, which if you know the story of David, it happened over and over and over. It was his own children. It was his former king. It was his friends. It was his advisors. It was his own self at times. Though they arise against him, they can't do anything to him. And in the midst of this confidence, he shares a little bit of what drives him and is supposed to then drive us. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. In the midst of this confidence, David dares to tell God the one thing he wants, which is to be in a place where he is worshiping God all the time. Seeing God clearly. Now, there's a phrase in here that feels to us guys or can feel to us guys a little bit too soft and, and we don't like, we sort of, sort of bristle against it. It's to recognize the beauty of the Lord. 
Not really a phrase that I use all that often. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Have you ever seen something truly beautiful? I mean really, truly beautiful. I could think of multiple things. But in nature, let's just stick with that. I was out on a trip with my dad and brother and some neighbors one time, and they were elk hunting out in some state. I always thought it was Wyoming. Then they were telling me it's Montana. Then I thought it was Montana, and they started telling me it was Wyoming. I have no idea where we were. But we were out west in the mountains. We took our horses. We packed everything in, and then we realized we needed to go out and get some stuff. So Nathan and I got on our horses. We rode out, and we came over this overpass, and or this pass to the mountains, not really an overpass. Anyway, wrong use of words. We came over this pass, and below us in the valley was a rainbow. I'd never seen a rainbow below me. That was really, really cool. And we just sort of stopped. I'm in high school. I'm not supposed to be taken by beautiful, natural things, but I was. And I was like, that is really cool. I never knew it could be that way. I always thought a rainbow had to be above you. Why? Because they've always been above me. I just assumed that's where they always were. Then all of a sudden, boom, there's a rainbow in the valley below us. And I lost track of time. I have no idea how long we looked at it. Could have been eight seconds. Could have been eight minutes. Could have been eight hours. It wasn't because the sun didn't go down. When we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in that sense, what we see is not this, oh, that's so beautiful. But we see a beauty that that captures us to a level that we almost can't describe. And and when people recognize God like that, what happens to them is a variety of things, but all of which become a, a lessening of self. Some people, Isaiah saw God and he fell on his face and worshiped, saying, I am undone because I'm unworthy. There's other people who, when they see the Lord, there's jubilation and excitement. What do we have? We have David seeking after the face of the Lord, which is his own phrase, and we're going to have to come back to that for a moment. But that's what he wants. He wants to seek God's face. He wants to see the beauty of the Lord. He wants to ask questions, not of God, though, sort of, but about God, to inquire in his temple about him, to understand him. And then he says, you've required that I seek your face, so Lord, your face do I seek. It's a weird phrase. Can you see God's face? Well, A, he's incorporeal, which means he has no body. So he doesn't really have a face. So what does that mean? Well, we go back to Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, and what he tells, what God tells Moses is that you can't see my face. For if you see my face, that's the mark of my true identity. If you see my face, you will die. So you can't do it. So kind of interesting. He tells Moses, I'm going to cut out a little hole in the rock. I'm going to stick you in it, and I'm going to cover it up so when I pass, you don't see anything, but when I get past, you can sort of see the afterimage of me. When I pass, see the backside of me is what he says, and that's as close as you can get. So that's what Moses sees. But then David tells us we're to seek his face. What does that mean? What does it mean to seek his face if we can't see his face and we're not supposed to see his face? It means that we're supposed to seek him. Matthew chapter 6 gives us lots of great things, but one of the things that Jesus says is this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I don't actually like those verses. Because I know if I am honest, my treasure is too frequently built up in the wrong places. It's in my abilities. It's in my position. It's in what I can do. It's not in Jesus Christ. And so then I, then I get wrong-minded. In verse 33 of the same chapter, Matthew 6, verse 33, Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All of what things? All of the things that make you worried. So this really isn't, that verse is really not saying don't. Don't be at all concerned about or pay attention to what you have. Part of my role as a father and a husband is to provide for my family, right? I'm not supposed to not worry about that. Well, I am supposed to not worry about that, but I'm not supposed to be consumed by that. I'm supposed to trust God. Lay up treasures in heaven, seek his kingdom, and then he will provide for me. But then David comes to this point here, and he says this. So back to Psalm 27. And, and what we have is a shift, and it's almost like David, David wrote all of this about worshiping God, the confidence that he has, the salvation from the Lord, went away, and then something happened. I'm not actually saying that's how it went. But it reads like that. Something happened, and we get verse 9. He says, hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Oh, you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me. But you, O Lord, will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. Teach, lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. My father and my mother have forsaken me, he says. The two people put in your life who are supposed to be there to protect you all the time. This could be an example to anybody who's supposed to be in a role of protecting you, but particularly this is his father and his mother. He says they've abandoned him. I don't know what that means because Jesse's always been painted in a good picture in the scripture. I don't know anything bad about him, but they've abandoned him, he says. And I don't think it reads... For my father and mother have abandoned me, but you, O oh Lord, will take me in. It seems much more dejected. Even my father and my mother have abandoned me. But you will take me in. It reads different. It's intended to read different. So in the midst of all of this confidence, he runs into this moment where, where objectively speaking, he still has the truth. He still has that God is his salvation and he has confidence in the Lord. But what it feels like in that moment is that everything has abandoned him.
teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path. Why? Because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me. They breathe out violence. So here's where he is. He's sitting in a spot where his enemies are rising against him, whether it's his kids, his advisors, his former king, whomever it is, they're rising against him to destroy him. And he feels that. He knows the truth, but he feels this reality. So what? So he says, I believe that I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. What does he mean by that? Well, where is the land of the living? It's here. It's where we currently are. So what he's saying is, I know that I will see the goodness of God before I die. Because I'll definitely see it after I die. When I die and I'm in heaven, I will see the goodness of God. But on this earth right now, I will see that again. What does that mean? What does that mean in David's life? What does that mean in your life? What does that mean in my life? When I say I will see the goodness of God, what does that mean? Does that mean that I will have whatever it was that I want or I feel like somebody is taking from me? Maybe not. But it means that God will show his goodness somehow. Now he comes to the main point of this psalm and he says, now wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. For what? For the acting against his adversaries. For all of this felt pain that he has that he wants to get out of, wait for God to move. When God does move, follow him. I'm reminded of the story of a guy caught in a flood. And in this flood, the water is coming down the street. If you were out the other night on Thursday night, you felt a little bit of this. I don't know how fast the rain was coming down, but I'm pretty sure it was like 36 inches per hour. We were out in it, um, not out, we were in the van, but we had been hiking with some friends and we got in the car, we started driving back and we got on Lakefront Street. And as we're going down this, all of a sudden the wind picked up and the rain picked up and we are going 10 miles per hour, wipers on full speed. I cannot see the road. The only thing I could do is follow the car in front of me. And when they decided to pull off on the side, I was like, well, shoot. Now what are we gonna do? I'm not stopping. I want to get home. So I drive around them. And we got to where 41 meets Lakefront Street and the curbs on 41. If you want to see it, drive out there. The curbs on 41 were underwater. I don't know how much water was coming down, but it was a lot. And now you have to, we had to deal with that. We had to, I don't even know where I was going with that. I have totally lost my mind. So... (laughs) That's not on, so I could say that. Oh, goodness. What? Thank you. The guy with the flood. I was like, this made sense, and now it's all gone. So there was a guy, and there was a flood, okay? So let's just rewind a little bit, pretend like none of that happened. So I'm reminded of a story about a guy in a flood, and the, the road starts to fill with water. So a police officer drives down the street, and he says, hey, The road is flooding. It's supposed to get worse. Let me give you a ride to safety. And he says, no, no, no. God will save me. Okay. Police officer drives off. 
A little while later, the water keeps coming up. Now it's to the top of his stairs at the very first floor of his house. And somebody comes by in a boat and says, hey, the storm is getting worse. How about I give you a ride to safety? And he goes, no, no, it's all right. God will save me. The water keeps coming up. So he gets on his roof and all of a sudden a helicopter comes by and it says, hey, you're going to die. How about you get on the rope and get to safety? And he says, no, it's okay. God will save me. And then the house washes away in the flood and the guy dies. He's in heaven and he says to God, what's the deal? I thought you were going to save me. And God goes, well, I sent you a police officer. I sent you a boat. And then I sent a helicopter. Sometimes God's saving us in this case. Sometimes what he does is to save us in mundane ways where it's not a miracle act. It's just normal, mundane things. You get sick, you go to the doctor and they see if they can help you. They sometimes give you radiation or chemotherapy for cancer. They do things to help you get better. You don't have to say, oh, no, 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 no. God will save me. That might be his mode of saving you. God might work through miraculous means. I'm reminded of a time in seminary where Allison and I were, we were going through seminary. I was in school. She was paying for me to go to school. And I worked at our church, and I didn't know the way taxes worked. Every year at tax time, every time I'd had a job, they'd already taken money out. Everything was square. I'm like, well, whatever. Here, I owed Social Security. For my money, or both sides of Social Security, and it was like $2,000. To us, that might, have, might as well have been $200,000. We had like 75 cents in our bank account. I remember I, I really wanted some coffee one night, so I found pennies around the house, and I started counting pennies till I had enough money to go buy some coffee from the grocery store so that I could have coffee. And we owed $2,000. Like, we don't have $2,000. We could probably borrow it from our parents. I don't really want to do that. I'm like, God, what do we do? And I kid you not, the next week, we got a letter in the mail from a distant relative. We hadn't told anybody about this and we owed just under $2,000 and they sent us a check for $2,000. And they said, we had extra this year. Felt like God wanted us to send it to you. So here's $7 more than you owe on your taxes. That might be the way that God does things when we wait for him. He may say in his waiting that we follow normal natural protocols and he, he works through mundane things. We don't know. And so we wait for him to act and we watch. And when we see him act and we see him move, we jump on board and we go with what he wants. Sometimes that means, well, it can mean a whole bunch of different things. But when God acts, when God calls us forward, we act. When he has us wait, we wait. Why? Why do we wait for the Lord? Because he is the one protecting us from our adversaries. He is the one who gives us the confidence that exudes from knowing that he is our salvation. And when he is our salvation and we're confident in him, then we wait for him. We don't have to do it on our own. If you were in the first service, I missed two different verses that I really wanted to bring up. One is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the, at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. He knows what you need, Jesus says. 
In Matthew 6, Jesus is talking about prayer and he says that the Gentiles, they say all sorts of fancy words in their prayer. And they say lots of words, thinking that in lots of words they can coerce God into doing what they want, but God already knows what you need. So just tell him. Don't try to impress him. And here he says, cast your cares on him and he will exalt you at the right time. Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. The point being, we wait for the Lord, and when he works, we follow. We wait for the Lord on our own end when he exalts us he will exalt us. It's not us doing it. We don't try to take his role and say, oh, we're going to make this happen. We're not strong enough. We're not capable enough. We're not supposed to do that. God builds and God works. God causes all those things to happen. When God calls you to wait, you wait on the Lord. Why? because you can sit in confidence knowing that he is your salvation. You're not being lazy, you're waiting. Now you could be being lazy, and when he calls you to move, you'd better be ready to move. But we wait until that time. Sometimes he'll use you to work in somebody else's life. Sometimes he'll use somebody else to work in your life. He knows what he's doing. And when he works, when we are waiting and he works, we follow him because the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold in my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? There's no one to come against me that I need to be anxious and worked up so I can patiently wait for God to work because God is bigger than whatever it is that's out there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you, Father, for giving us your son and giving us, giving us you. Father, we need you more than we recognize, more than we can possibly understand. And we pray, Father, that you would be honored in our hearts and our lives today, tomorrow, all of our time. We love you. And it's in Christ's amazing and holy name we pray. Amen.